This morning we're going to continue our study together in uh, the Psalms of Hope. So we began, as you remember, in Psalm 13, and our hope and lament. We, uh, we spent two weeks then in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and our hope and God's care. And last week we examined Psalm 27 together, whom shall I fear, our hope and God's protection. And this morning we're going to be looking at, at Psalm 30 together, mourning into dancing, and our hope in God's redemption. The word redeem can have a, a few different connotations um, to compensate for a fault, to clear a debt, to buy back, but the most general sense biblically is to turn bad into good, to bring good out of bad. When I was in college, I was very into intramural sports, especially beach volleyball. And my junior year, we had lost in the finals to Sigma Nu, our arch rivals. But we bounced back my senior year. We had an even better team, and we were slotted to face Sigma Nu again in the championship game. But leading up to the big game, I had developed a bit of a cough that had then kind of persisted and grown worse over the course of a few weeks. And I tried all the over-the-counter you know, allergy and, and cough medicines to no avail. Finally, it was getting so debilitating. I was worried I wasn't going to be able to play, reaching out to my teammates. Um, in my desperation, I, I turned to my father, who was a physician, and he prescribed me some prednisone. And I don't know if you're familiar with prednisone. It's a pretty powerful steroid. And I honestly can't remember if it helped my cough or not. But what I do remember is feeling like I could jump over the net in the championship game. The Sigma News stood no chance, uh, and I guess technically our, our name on the intramural trophy should have an asterisk beside it because I was doping. But the point that I'm trying to make is that sometimes God takes what looks to be a pretty dire, hopeless situation and brings out of it a glorious result that is even better than if he had spared you the affliction in the first place. I can think of plenty more significant examples, obviously, in my own life. I think of my marriage with Polly, um, our early difficult years of marriage that God has worked to redeem and to bring us closer together to make our marriage stronger than it would have been had we never gone through those difficulties. I think of our son, you know, God using our infertility, our, our journey through infertility to bless us through adoption. We wouldn't have our son, Elijah, today if God had not uh, let us go through that struggle, and I'm sure you can think of your own examples as well. You know, maybe God has used this recent lockdown and school and work closings to bring your family closer together. Uh, perhaps you met your spouse at AA. Maybe you, you went to the doctor for what you thought was a little cough, and they found cancer uh, that saved your life before, you know, it got untreatable. We all have our examples of God taking something that was bad and using it transforming it, redeeming it for good. The quintessential biblical example is a story of Joseph. Joseph we'll get to when we go back to our series in Genesis, but he was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers and eventually thrown in prison by his master, Potiphar, after his wife lied about Joseph. But God redeemed Joseph's life and used him powerfully to deliver not only the Egyptians from the threat of famine, but to rescue his own family as well. Joseph's uh, father, Israel, moved their family, his 11 other brothers, down to Egypt to escape the, fam the famine. And uh, after Israel died, Joseph's brothers 
were terrified. They thought, well, now Joseph's finally going to exact his revenge on us. But what does Joseph tell them? He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Our God redeems. Our God brings good out of evil. That's our theme. That is our hope. That's our joy in Psalm 30 this morning, God's redemptive power. And we're going to examine six specific life-threatening dangers that God specifically promises to redeem us from here, to overcome evil with good. And we're going to consider how each of them points us ahead to God's ultimate act of redemption, which fulfilled all six of these prophetic promises, the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. Jesus claimed in the New Testament that all of the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, found its fulfillment in him. That means there are three ways of interpreting any Old Testament passage. There is the, number one, past historical reading. What does this passage mean in its original context to its original historic author and audience? In this case, Psalm 30, the author is King David, and he's writing to his 10th century B.C. Jewish subjects. But then there's also the present-day reading. What does this passage mean to us, to you, and to me today in our very different 21st century American context? But the most important context of all, according to Jesus, is the prophetic reading, number three. How does this passage anticipate and illustrate Jesus? And I want to consider all three of those readings here as we work our way through Psalm 30, past, present, and prophetic, and God's six acts of redemption. Lots to get through. So, would you stand with me one more time as you're able for the reading of God's Word? I'll read it for us from the ESV translation. Words will be on the screen in front. We got Bibles for you. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to gift one to you as well at the info bar. Hear the Word of the Lord. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we are a broken people this morning as we've already confessed to you we confess again now God we like David are a people in need of redemption in need of rescue and salvation God we thank you that you are a redeeming God a powerful faithful good God that we can take hope in your promise of redemption if we will but humble ourselves you promise that you exalt the humble and so father now this morning we humble ourselves under the authority of your word we humble ourselves to receive it would you open our ears open our our ears to hear our eyes to see our hearts to experience anew your mercies that are new every morning because we are our sin is new every morning and we need new mercy father we thank you we pray that you would make much of jesus now as we study your word together in christ's name we pray amen you may be seated now, right out of the gate before we even begin verse one we find in the very context of Psalm 30 here a fascinating clue that points us to these multiple readings and interpretations, past, present, prophetic. Your Bibles probably in include a superscription that reads something like a Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Now what's so interesting about that is when was the temple built? Biblical scholars in here, who built the temple? Solomon. David's son, right? So how are we to understand this contextual note if there's not even a temple to be dedicated yet in David's day? Again, we go back to our three possible explanations. One option is we know that David made preparations for the temple. He purchased the temple mound on which it would later be built. So perhaps he composed this song, Psalm 30, to be sung at its completion later by Solomon because David of all people knew you know, David, whose own sinful affair with Bathsheba had led to the birth of Solomon, David wanted Israel never to forget God's redemptive power to bring good out of bad and evil. That's one interpretation. Number two, some scholars have suggested the superscription was added later, and it refers to the dedication at the second temple, which was built 400 years later by Zerubbabel, after the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon, Babylon destroyed the first temple, Solomon's temple. And we know that Psalm 30 has come to be recited by Jews every year at Hanukkah, which uh, the feast that commemorates the dedication of the second temple to this day. That's more of a kind of present day understanding. But there is a third prophetic interpretation. James Johnston suggests in his commentary that as a Christian, it is hard to read this superscription without remembering that Jesus described his own body as the temple. Jesus said to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. So when we read Psalm 30 in the light of the New Testament, this song celebrates the dedication of Jesus' own body on the cross. Jesus is the temple, the place where we now meet with God. When God the Father raised him from the dead, God the Son sang this song for joy. So already before verse 1 here, 
We've got past, present, prophetic implications. Now, if this psalm is all about redemption, what does God redeem us from? Six things. Number one, Satan. God redeems us from Satan. Verse one, David begins by praising God, by extolling him. He says, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. So, the past historical reading will recognize that David had literal foes, lots of them, all throughout his life. Goliath, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Syrians, uh, this heckler named Shimei, uh, Shimei, King Saul, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, David's own son, Absalom. So David is praising here God for his protecting and sustaining power all 70 years of David's long life. But there is present-day application for us as well. I told you a few weeks ago that uh, we're not really cool enough anymore to have enemies. Right? That's like the stuff of superheroes nowadays. But the Bible reminds us that we really do have an enemy, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That we have a real enemy, a spiritual enemy, Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And some of us this morning may need to be reminded that as believers, we are at war. We do not live in a time of peace right now in this life. We are at war. Maybe you've heard the illustration before. There are two types of Christians. There are cruise ship Christians and there are battleship Christians. Cruise ship Christians just kind of drift through life casually, luxuriously, content to enjoy life's pleasures on a leisurely path toward heaven eventually. Battleship Christians are on a mission. We know that life is fleeting, that our life is but a breath, that the days are evil, so you better make the most of them. Ephesians 5.16, redeem the time, Paul says. The Apostle Paul exhorts us, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Our enemy, he says, is constantly flinging darts, flaming darts at us. That is, if you pose any threat to him at all. If you're a cruise ship Christian, Satan won't bother with you. He doesn't have to. You're not worth his time. Worth his time. But if you are a battleship Christian, you need to recognize that we're at war and that Satan will come against you with everything he has his kingdom of darkness. Let's don't over-spiritualize this whole idea of, of darkness and cosmic forces, present darkness and forces of evil in our world today. Right, let's, let's make this tangible for a minute. Since I walked up on stage to begin preaching this morning, 80 children have died of hunger around the world. An estimated 1,300 people have been trafficked for sex or slave labor one per second. 2,500 babies have been killed worldwide by abortion since I walked on stage. Two per second. There is real evil in our world, friends. Satan is on a mission. Satan is in battle mode. And the question is, are we? Are you? What are you doing to join the fight? 
There is no place for cruise ships in a time of war. But here's the prophetic fulfillment in Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus by faith, he has now set you free from your enslavement to the enemy's army. You once were a rebel, like we sang this morning, a rebel to God's cause. You were picking up arms against the God, the creator of the universe. Now God has set you free. He's redeemed you. He's invited you to join his side. Join the good fight, the allied forces. The Apostle Paul says God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. He says that once you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan was your general. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God raised us up in Christ. David says here in verse 1, you, O Lord, have drawn me up. This is a Hebrew metaphor, idiom. The, the verb literally refers to drawing a bucket up out of, wa of water, out of a well. That's the picture, right? There's something inherently creepy about wells, isn't there? You're standing over, peering down into this dark hole that descends into the bowels of the earth. I don't know if, has anyone here seen, remember the, the movie The Ring? Y'all are all Christians, so you'll pretend like you haven't seen it. It's still probably the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life, and the scariest scene, the scariest image is what? The well, right? I mean, it just sends, sends shivers down my spine just thinking about it. Talk about evil. And David says, God draws us up out of the well. You've raised me up out of the pit of darkness and not let my foe, Satan, rejoice over me. Number two, God redeems us from sickness. Verse two, David says, O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you've healed me. The Bible calls God our great physician. He declares of himself in Exodus 15, 26, I am the Lord your healer. Psalm 103, 3 says, God heals all your diseases. You say, wait a minute, I've heard about this. Right, this theology, name it and claim it, health and wealth gospel. If I just pray hard enough, God will heal all of my diseases. We have a couple who recently joined our life group who uh, converted a few years back from being Christian scientists. They were telling us a story last week about a little girl in their church who had contracted a perfectly treatable infection in her foot, but her parents refused treatment for weeks. The neighbors heard her screaming in agony at night, called an ambulance. The parents sent the paramedics away and just kept praying. Eventually, her whole leg had to be amputated. And then the family got shamed for taking her to the hospital to save her life. Like their faith wasn't strong enough, their prayers. This is sick stuff. Like theology has life and death consequences, eternally, spiritually. 
This is a perversion of the true gospel, the good news of God's word that Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes, by Jesus' stripes, we are what? Healed. That 1 Peter 2, 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. By his wounds you have been healed. That is the kind of healing that you and I most desperately need, friends, and that is the most important healing that Jesus has actually delivered to us. He has accomplished for us spiritual healing. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I ask you this morning, friends, do you realize that you're sick? Have you realized that you're sick? Have you admitted to yourself and to the Lord that you suffer from a 100% eternally fatal and yet 100% treatable disease of the heart known as sin and confess that you don't have the cure, that you need a physician? You can be healed today. Trust in Jesus. His wounds, His stripes, His sacrificially atoning death in your place on the cross so that you could be spared the wrath of a holy God against your sin and instead be reconciled to the Creator and the lover of your soul. Trust in Jesus today and be saved, be cured, be healed. You say, well, Aren't you over-spiritualizing things again? And doesn't God promise right there in Psalm 103 to heal all our diseases? God didn't say just the spiritual, all our diseases. Johnston explains, God heals everyone who belongs to him. That's God's promise, period. God heals everyone who belongs to him. But... His plan is to heal us completely by raising these weak bodies from death. God does give lesser healings in this life sometimes. Some of y'all at West Hills have experienced that. We have people who worship with us here who were given a year to live by their doctor. Now here they are 15, 20 years later, cancer-free. God can and does work miracles. And I would encourage, exhort you, if, 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 if you are experiencing a physical, temporal illness, physical, mental, emotional, that you need prayer for. James 5 tells us, take it to the elders. Come to me. Take it to our, the elders of our church. We will absolutely pray for you, for your healing. But what does God promise in the rest of James 5? He says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, but save him how? The Lord will raise him up. There it is again. And if he has committed sins, James immediately makes it about the spiritual. He will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God doesn't promise our physical healing in this life, but he always promises our spiritual healing, and it's most important. So even if God doesn't provide that bodily healing in the here and now, Even if God does not heal your body until he gives you a new one, a new resurrection body, 
Johnston says, don't diminish God's healing through death as if it was second best. The ultimate healing comes when God raises his loved ones from the dead, just like he did Christ our Lord. That's a perfect segue to point number three. God redeems us from Sheol. Verse three. Redeems us from Sheol. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Before Jesus... When a person died, they went to a place called Sheol. It's depicted in the Old Testament as a pit down in the heart of the earth. Again, creepy image. The the faithful went to a part of Sheol, sometimes referred to as paradise. The wicked went to a place of torment. But in either case, there's a sense in which you didn't want to be there. Because life is better than death. Even the paradise section of death. And so the Psalms are filled with prayers for God's deliverance from Sheol, from death. The psalmist asks in Psalm 89, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And David answers in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquity, who redeems your life up from the pit. David writes in Psalm 18, The cords of death encompassed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me up out of many waters. Again, with that image. He rescued me because he has delighted in me. Similarly, Psalm 116, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and merciful, for you have delivered my soul from death. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The living. Psalm 49, God will ransom redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Psalm 71, 20, finally, you will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Resurrection. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. Resurrection. It's not just a New Testament thing. There are three recorded resurrections in the Old Testament. And the word that David uses for restore here in Psalm 30, verse 3, God restored my life, is the same verb used of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 8, verse 5, when he raised the woman of Shunem's son up from the dead. You can think of Jonah. After three days in the belly of the whale, God raised him up. Think of Joseph coming up out of the pit. Even if he sold him to slay, he's coming up. They're all pictures, they're shadows, they're prophetic prefigurings of a much greater resurrection to come. And so my present day application for us this morning is do you know the one who has the power to restore, to revive, to redeem your life up from the grave? Do you know him? Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who died. And when Jesus came to Bethany, he found Lazarus' sister Martha upset 
and heartbroken. But Jesus said to her, don't worry, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again. In the resurrection, on the last day, she said, I know he's, he's gone down to Sheol, only to wait, wait for the Messiah to come and finally break the shackles of death for good, empty the cells of Sheol, and Jesus replies, the wait is over. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Amen. So I ask you again, friends, do you believe in him? When your name gets called, when your time is up, what or who would you be counting on? All the money in the world will not be able to redeem you, to buy you back from the grave on that day, to turn that evil death into good. Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He said, for what can a man give in return for a soul? There's no exchange rate for a soul. All the money in the world won't save you. Like I've known lots of incredibly wealthy people in my life who have passed away. Do you know what all their money got them in the end? A nicer hole in the ground. You cannot take it with you. Do you believe in the one who can bring your soul up from Sheol, who can restore your life up from the pit, who can promise you, though you die, yet shall you live? If you do, then you can look death in the face like the Apostle Paul and say, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's another good transition to point number four because Paul says the sting of death is sin. Elsewhere he says the wages of sin is death. What our sin rightfully earns us is death, that eternal separation from a holy God. You go way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve. God had told them, on the day that you eat of the fruit, break my one rule, disobey me, sin, you shall surely die. And they did, spiritually. And ever since, Romans 5.12, death has spread to all men because all have sinned. We, we are all just passing this disease around. No masks are going to keep you safe from it, right? For thousands of years, no vaccine. You want to talk about a long wait? Thousands of years. We don't know the half of it with this COVID thing, right? We're, we're not talking about a 2 or 3% death rate. We're talking about 100% spiritually fatal disease. Sin, death, spread to all men, waiting for the cure. And Jesus says, the wait is over. I'm here. 
But even a thousand years before Jesus, David prophetically announced his coming. He assured us of point number four, that God redeems us from sin. From sin. David says in verses four and five, sing praises to the Lord for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. His anger. What is God mad about? This is an unpopular notion in the church even today. God, what is God mad about? God doesn't get mad at our sicknesses. He doesn't get mad at our sorrows, at our suffering. He is compassionate about those things. What is God mad about? Sin, right? Our sin angers God. And that's what David is referring to in verse 5. The past historical context here, the occasion for David writing Psalm 30 is detailed for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We don't have time to read the whole story, but the long and short of it is Satan incited David to take a census to number Israel. God had told David not to. God had said it doesn't matter how many people there are in Israel. It doesn't matter how many troops you have. It doesn't matter how big your kingdom is. I am your strength. I am the Lord. I, Yahweh will fight your battles for you. You don't need to know how many troops you've got. But David disobeys. David sins. And he angers a holy God. One of our favorite hymns here at West Hills is in Christ alone. And there's that great line in verse 2 that proclaims, till on that cross as Jesus died, the what? The wrath of God was satisfied. Some churches today won't sing that. When the song was released back in the early 2000s, the Presbyterian Church USA tried to buy the rights to the song so they could put it in their hymnal, but changed the lyrics to, on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Because they liked the rest of the song. The wrath of God? It's an unpopular notion. The wrath of God? Is it a biblical notion? What does Proverbs 8.13 say? Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, God says, I, what? Hate. Psalm 5.5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, what? Hate all evildoers. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And friends, if you do not understand, if you cannot bring yourself to accept the wrath of God against your sin, then the cross of Jesus will make absolutely no sense to you. If our sins didn't actually cause a riff between us and a holy, perfect God, if God didn't hate sin, didn't have to make a way for it to be dealt with, for his wrath to be appeased, his justice to be satisfied, then what did Jesus even die for? I'll tell you what he died for. He died to redeem you and me from the curse of sin. We read in Romans 5 and 6, we read them earlier, 
But here's the last half of the verses that we read earlier. Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man and death spread to all men because all sin. It was the virus. It was the cancer. But if death reigned through that one man, much more so will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. That's what was earned us by virtue of our sin. We deserve death. But what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life. Because His anger is but for a moment. But His favor is now for a lifetime. Not just a lifetime. An eternity. Eternal life a favor that only Jesus deserved that he traded for your unrighteousness to give you God's favor. Number five, God redeems our sadness. David cries, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. These are the most famous verses in this whole psalm. And of course, I don't have enough time now to really do them justice in my exposition, but fortunately, they don't need a whole lot of elaboration. It's right there for you. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Write this down, though. Jesus doesn't promise to remove our sadnesses. He promises to redeem them. That's good. You should write that down. Jesus doesn't promise to remove our troubles and our sadnesses. He promises to redeem them. No, sadness will not be fully eradicated until the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation chapter 21 When God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But until then, Jesus doesn't say, come follow me, and you'll never cry again. No, for now there's still weeping. There's still cancer. There's still COVID. There's still miscarriages. There's still unemployment. There's still divorce. Even Jesus wept. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? That if you have one verse memorized, you know it. Jesus what? Wept, right? Do you remember the context for that verse? It's John 11. It's the very same passage I already read you. It's when Jesus found out about his friend Lazarus's death. He wept. But joy comes in the morning. Joy came in the morning when Jesus arrived in Bethany at the gravesite. And he said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. He came out of the grave. Weeping tarried for two nights when Jesus himself was laid in the earth. But joy came came on the third morning. 
when the women came to visit his tomb. And the angel of the Lord said, why are you weeping? And why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He is what? Risen. He's been raised up, lifted up. Friends, I don't know what has you crying this morning. I don't know what has had you crying this week, but here's what I do know. I know that God does not promise to remove your sadness, but he does promise to redeem it. That there is not a single tear of yours that will ever be wasted. God promises in Psalm 56, 8, that he collects our tears in his bottle. That's a beautiful image. Because God is counting every one and making sure that not a single one of your tears will be wasted. And lastly, number six, God redeems us from our strengths. He redeems us from our strengths. David confesses, as for me, verse six, in, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you have made my mountain stand strong. Remember the context again. David took this census so that he could boast in how many people he ruled, how powerful his army was, how expansive his kingdom was. In researching this week, I heard a scholar estimate that adjusted for inflation, David's net worth was somewhere in the ballpark of $40 billion. That's the kind of prosperity that will make even the best of kings tempt him to say, wow, I will never be moved. I'm untouchable. But David reflects back on it now maybe years later when he writes Psalm 30, and he realizes, verse 7, it was by your favor, O Lord, that I was prosperous. I can't boast in any of this, God. You did all of it. You made my mountain stand strong. In the minute that you hid your face, verse 8, to humble me, to put me in my place, to punish me for the sin of taking that census so that I could boast in my own strength, then I was what? Dismayed. We have a tendency in life to minimize our weaknesses and boast in our strengths, don't we? Is that just me? Psalm 10 says, For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek the Lord. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Exact same words David uses, right? This righteous king. Psalm 10 says, the wicked say, I shall not be moved. Boast in my strength. If you are convinced in your pride that you can't be moved, that you're untouchable, then you will not seek the face of the Lord. It says the wicked doesn't seek the Lord. In Christianity, we call this functional atheism. You may say that you believe in God. You may sign all the right statement of faiths. But, practically speaking, you live like there's no God, because you don't need God. 
or worse yet, you're him. In your pride and your prosperity, you have become a God unto yourself. And so what do we do in these moments, like King David, when we realize, like, like him, that in our prosperity, we've forgotten about the Lord, the giver of the good gifts. We cry out to God for mercy. Verses 8 through 10. Mercy, have mercy on me, O Lord, right? Be my helper. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve Satan. We deserve sin. We deserve Sheol, the result of sin, death. We deserve sadness. Redemption turns things upside down. Redemption flips things on their head. Death becomes life. Sadness becomes gladness. Strengths become weaknesses, and weaknesses become strengths. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. He says, don't be like, like you guys, minimizing your weaknesses and boasting in your strengths. I will boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses and insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am truly strong. I officiated Ryan Gibson and Allie Smith's wedding yesterday. And I prayed for them for weaknesses. I prayed for hardships in their marriage. I prayed for calamities. Some of the family members started to peek up from having their eyes closed. Like, who is this guy? Get him off the stage. Because when they are weak in their marriage, it will drive them back together again into one another's arms and more importantly, back into the arms of their Heavenly Father. that John Piper quote from Psalm 23 a few weeks back. Sheep have a tendency to forget about the shepherd when they're in the green pastures. Oh, there's some great grass. But when you go through the dark valleys, you are clinging to him, right? And when we humble ourselves and we cling to him in our weakness, then will we be able to say with King David, Verse 12, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Your praise, not my praise anymore. I'm not boasting in my strength anymore. My glory now is your praise. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Because then the joy of the Lord will be my strength. The glory of the Lord will be our heart's greatest passion let me end with this with david's question in verse 9 i want to answer it for him david makes his case before the lord don't send me to sheol yet don't let me die yet if i go there i won't be able to praise you don't you want to be praised god so he asked this question in verse 9 making his case god will the dust praise you if you let me die, will it tell of your faithfulness? The answer is yes, it will. 
Jesus tells us in the New Testament, if you are silent, even these rocks will cry out. Make no mistake, friends, God will be praised. The question is, will you do it willingly, humbly, obediently, or will he have to humble you? Philippians 2 says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, on that day, will you bend your knee willingly in humble submission or will God have to humble you, force you to bend your knee on that day? You don't want to be in that position. Jesus said, the proud will be humbled, but the humble will be, what? Exalted, lifted up, raised up. This psalm is about redemption. It's about resurrection. But Jesus says to get it, you have to know you're sick. and You have to cry out for the physician. All you need is need. Cry out to him today and let him Redeem you. Let's pray.